Dear Jesus, thank you. Uh, Thank you for abiding in us. Thank you for giving us hope. Uh, We know that even when we falter, we may run. What good hope, Father. What strong words. Um, Please be with us today. May we hear your words and not hear what you would have us ignore. And may we not push back against truth. May we be receptive to your um, movement in our hearts, movement in our minds. May we be transformed by the word. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. You are a good king. Amen. Um, so I, I, I like to read, and uh, I recently was convicted about my lack of knowledge of biographies. And so I started getting into biographies lately. Um, I just finished the book Unbroken uh, by Laura Hildenbrand, I think. Um, and I've I been listening to that uh, on, on uh, Audible. It's been a phenomenal book. It's a story of Olympic runner Louis Zamperini. And how he was, uh, his time as a World War II POW over in Japan. Um, In his time over there, he spent several years in captivity uh, around several different islands. And and the book spends most of the time talking about what's leading up to the war, his time during the war, and then briefly after the war. His time in the war was marked by one man. And they called him the bird. They couldn't call him his real name, otherwise they would get hit. So they referenced this one leading guard called the bird. They referred to him as the bird because he would stand and watch, and it was a safe thing to call him. After the war, the bird was evaded and uh, evaded capture for many years. He evaded capture because he was convicted of many, many accounts of war crimes against the POWs. In particular, his war crimes had a, per, um, a, a very impactful impact on Louis Zamperini. He singled out Louis over the course of the war and tortured him. He abused Louis and many other prisoners in ways that I would blush to mention here. It is a story of Jesus working in one man's life to save him, Louis. But it is also a story marked by the bird. Many years after the war... In 1995, having been acquitted from all charges against him, there was an interview done with the bird. And at that time, he showed absolutely no remorse for his repeated bloody torture and regular excruciating abuse of the prisoners. In fact, he ended up blaming the POWs for making him hurt them and said that he was helping them feel the full weight of their inhumanity by disregarding their human dignity. The bird, in 1995, was pleased with his actions and his life. He was glad with what he had done during the war. The bird believed that he had lived a pleasing life, both pleasing to himself, to his family, and to his country. He believed that there was more honor in death than in captivity, and so he believed that he was helping the POWs recover their honor. Because in surrendering to Japan, they had lost it. Was he wrong? How do you know? What is your definition of a pleasing life? If you disagree that the bird lived a displeasing life, how can you back that up? Is it because of where your definition of a pleasing life comes from? Is it because you made it up? Is it because the government told you what a pleasing life is? Is it because of... 
a consensus among other people in your country, among your people? How do we know what a pleasing life is? The bird's definition for a pleasing life came from himself, his government, and a consensus among his people. So how do we know if we disagree? How are we to decide what is a pleasing and unpleasing life? What is in fact pleasing if our ideas contradict the birds? If we feel we are living pleasing lives, how do we, how do we logically work through that if he also is living a pleasing life? That's what we're here to talk about today. Where does our definition for a pleasing life come from? Please stand with me as we read the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, and not in a passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. In verse 1 and 2 of this passage, Paul mentions the Lord Jesus twice. He says, in the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus. Sometimes when we read scripture that has imperatives, imperatives are things, uh, commands, they imply what we should do. Sometimes when we read those, we, we fall in one of two sides of a understanding. We either reject it completely and say, no, that's legalistic, I've got the gospel. Or we reject it because... Or we embrace it too much and we say, no, I've got that. I can do this. Forget Jesus. Don't need the cross. This is what Paul opens this section with in the Lord Jesus and through the Lord Jesus. Because he wants to remind us that this is in the gospel alone. The imperatives are achieved only in the gospel. Paul says this because of Jesus' last words in Matthew 28. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' death for our sin was made possible for us to die with him and thus die to sin, so that sin no longer had any power over us. Jesus' resurrection from death, his coming back to life, made it possible then for us to come back to life with him and enjoy freedom that the sin holds on us. The gospel is our way to a pleasant and pleasing life. It is our way back to life so that we do not have to be ensnared in sin. In the gospel, Jesus tells us what is right and wrong, not to hurt us, not to condemn us, but because we've already died to condemnation. Because in condemnation there is sin. 
And so that we are now free from that sin, from the slavery, literal slavery, where we have no choice to sin. When I'm parenting, when you are parenting, we want what is best for our kids. We tell them what is right and what is wrong. Because we know it's a better life for them if they obey. Because we know that it will help them learn about life. Because we know that as we tell them what is right and wrong, and as we give them a consequence for doing wrong, it's loving to them. It communicates love from a parent to a child, for the parent to tell the child, this is wrong, and to indeed give them a consequence, and to ensure that that child does not do it again. I love my kids, but I surely discipline them. You can check out my Instagram feed. I love my kids. They're all over it. But I do discipline my kids. Jesus tells us in Hebrews that if he does not discipline us, it is proof that he does not love us. His discipline is proof that he loves us. How are we to know if we have disobeyed and or obeyed if there is not a list of what it looks like to follow Jesus? If there are not commands to disobey, we will never know and Christ will never be able to reprove us and thus communicate the gospel to us and give us hope if we do not know what is wrong and what is right. Verse 2, why does he tell us this? Because Jesus said so. Jesus gave instructions as to what was pleasing to God, as to what a pleasing life looks like, so that we can cling to Jesus, so that we can cling to Jesus. Before Jesus, we cannot cling to him. Before the gospel, before repenting of our sin and believing that he rose from the dead so that we could also rise from the dead, it is impossible to please God. He tells us this to focus on his perfect sacrifice because that sacrifice would mean nothing to us if Jesus did not live a perfect life, if he had not lived in obedience to the Lord. But because he did obey for me, I now have no fear in my disobedience. I now have freedom to run after Jesus and not have my fear of disobeying lead how I live life. Before Jesus, we all have to obey perfectly to get to heaven. None of us do it. But that's the only way. And so we have a fear of if we disobey, then we're going to hell. But with Jesus, we need have no fear of that. We may, to a degree, disobey freely. However, that would then be evidence that we had not received the Spirit and repented of our sins. But, in a sense, we may have freedom to pursue Jesus without a fear of disobedience. Verses 3 and 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body or take his own wife in holiness and honor, and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Sanctification happens when we know God more and more, and more, and more, and more, times infinity plus a million. Sanctification happens as we know God. What is sanctification? Well, sanctification is to make holy. It is mean to be set apart, sacred, consecrated. It means to purify and remake whole again. To make productive where unproductiveness reigned before. Sanctification 
is God's will for our life? When we struggle as we often do, what is God's will for my life? One overarching answer to that is sanctification. In marriage, when I'm doing marriage counseling, it's often asked, how do I know that I should marry this person? And once I do, how do I know that I should stay married to this person? Marriage is given to us not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Making us holy is sanctification. That is God's purpose in life. Often in marriage, happiness is a result of that holiness. But if we aim for the happiness, we lose the holiness. And if we aim for the holiness, God always brings the happiness. Sanctification is God's working out of His grace in our lives. The whole person is enabled to daily die to sin. If you're an unbeliever and have never repented of your sin, you are literally enslaved just like Louis Zamperini was in the POW camp. You have no choice but to sin. And yet so you choose to continue to sin. In sanctification, because of our new status with God, which is called justification, the whole person is enabled to day daily to sin and then to live according to God's will through repentance and belief in the gospel. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen like that. It doesn't, it's not a once and done thing. Justification is once and done. That was Jesus on the cross. Sanctification is the effect of Jesus on the cross in our daily lives. It happens very, very slowly. To my great dismay. <laughs> because I would rather be much more holy than I am right now. And I wish it happened quicker. And I'm just simply impatient. But the Lord is patient. And He endures us as we continue to fall back into sin. And continues to chide. Continues to come after us. After he saved us, to make us holy, to sanctify us. But he does it not through my own effort. He does it not through how hard I try to follow Jesus. My own effort should come after Jesus has already saved me. But it does not save me, and it does not make me holy. What makes me holy, what makes you holy, our hope in becoming holy, is solely set on the cross. It's solely set on what Jesus did and His working that out in our lives. Sanctification is the working out of that in our lives. In verse 3, Paul mentions sexual immorality. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why does he bring up sexual immorality? From all sins. Well, first of all, it's one thing that we all struggle with. All of us are tempted in some way Sexually. The word that Paul uses to describe sexual immorality here is called pornea in the Greek. A definition of that is a selling off or a surrendering of sexual purity. Promiscuity of any and every type. It is not just sex outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. But it is lust within that marriage. Paul uses this word because it covers all sexual activity that is not happening between a husband and a wife. He commands us, Jesus does, to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because he wants to beat us down on our issues? No. Because we know God. The contrast between those who engage in sexual immorality and those who abstain is the knowing of God. 
And thus, it is the holy and honorable life versus the whimsical, passionate, lustful life. Our sanctification, especially in this area of sexual immorality, is directly related to our pursuing the knowing of God. The knowing of God is not simply knowledge. This pursuit of the knowledge of God is how we fight sexual immorality. I just dumped like five pages ahead of my notes. And your heart just jumped because I said I had five pages of notes. The knowing of God is not simply book knowledge. This does not start and end here. In the book of the word. It is bookended by the book. But our knowledge of the Lord is an experiential knowledge that comes through life as we pursue Jesus. As we pursue repentance and belief of our sin. He cleanses us in that. We have been forgiven from all sin that we will ever commit. There's freedom then to pursue Jesus with great commitment. The knowing of God is not simply memorizing Scripture, though memorizing Scripture helps us know God. The knowing of God is not simply coming to church and hearing someone preach the Word, but it is preaching the Word vital to knowing the Lord. And you have to preach the Word to yourselves as well. You have to make a choice to pursue God, which is Him in you choosing to pursue God. Praise Him for that, because none of us would choose to pursue Him without Him first coming to pursue us. This knowledge here has in mind a knowledge of God described in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is a knowledge of knowing a person. It is a knowledge of knowing who God is. As we get to know God, as we study and read and and eat our Bibles, as we get our nose in the book to have ink on our noses, we begin to know God. Because this is a magic book. And not in the weird magic way. This is a living book. This is the book through which God speaks to us and transforms our lives. People repent and follow Jesus simply by reading this book, which is, in fact, a miracle. This is a knowledge of God's greatness and His worth, of His glory and His grace. And it's a powerful knowledge. A knowledge that stuns you where you're standing, that humbles you where you're sitting. And it is a knowledge that wins you and holds you forever. But that's not all. Greek, in this next verse, verse 5, it says Greek, or it doesn't say Greek. The, the word is that not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. We must learn to control our own body in holiness and honor. The word here in Greek, control your own body, control your own vessel, could also just as easily be translated, learn how to take a wife. Though, I will tell you men, he is not just speaking to you. We are, as men in America and around the world, more addicted to sexual immorality than our female counterparts. However, women, you are not left out in this equation. Women, you can be addicted to sexual immorality just as much. And calling an addiction is no excuse for it. Often, drinking and being a drunk is called an addiction, and therefore I can't help it, and that's what I do. We take that same approach to 
sexual immorality. I am addicted. It's a medical term. Therefore, I cannot help it. I'm not responsible, therefore, anymore. Paul tells us that Jesus holds us responsible for our addictions, for our sin. And he says, you must learn how to take a wife, become one flesh in holiness and honor, and not in the passion of lust. That means that if I'm single and I see a pretty girl and I have lustful thoughts about her, I cannot just marry her. She's obviously got to say yes. But even if she felt that same way towards me right away, which no one ever has, I, you have to go through a process. You have to pursue God and do it in holiness and honor, not in a passion of lust. Holiness, he uses that word, because holiness has to do with God, being set apart for God. In verse 5, he says, not in the passion of lust like the heathen, the Gentile, the pagan. The person, the word used is to describe the person who literally has no knowledge, the kind of knowledge I described before, of God. Knowing God and acting like it keeps sexual desire, which is a good, wonderful, beautiful, incredible thing, from becoming lust. Looking at verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, call for holiness, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The root issue of lust is regard for God. Holiness is living in supreme regard for a holy God. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the flesh that we now live, and the life we now live in the flesh We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lust is the opposite of sexual desire, of a good sexual desire. Lust is sexual desire which is not regulated or governed or guided or ruled by a regard for God. It is a shunning of God's way and an embracing of my quote-unquote better way. God created sexuality. He created it good and beautiful. He created it for the good of us. Having sex in your marriage is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is for your good. If you don't, you're in a lot of trouble. It is something to be repented of if there is no sex in your marriage. He alone, God, has the wisdom and the right to show us how to use sexuality for his glory and for our good. Lust is what sexual desire becomes when we disregard God. It is a, a dishonoring of objects. It is a dishonoring of people. It is a corruption of good, which all sin is a corruption of good. Sin does not exist on its own apart from good. Sin only corrupts good. If your sexual desire, if my sexual desire is not guided by a respect and honor for others, and a regard for holiness of God, it is simply lust. And it shows that we do not know God. Now, not know God at all, no. But not know God to the degree that we need to, yes. If you are married and you have sexual lust for someone other than your wife, repent. Tell your wife, repent. And then pursue God. In the pursuit of God, we find how we resist lust and worship Him in our sex life. A quick illustration from John Piper on how we fight lust. 
He says, when reading a book by Francis Muriak, he concludes that there's one powerful reason to seek purity in marriage and outside of marriage. The reason Christ gave in the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This thought hit me like a bell rung in the dark, silent night. And this is Francis Muriak. So far, none of the scary negative arguments against lust has succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with Jesus. The love that he offers is so transcendent and so possessing that it requires our facilities to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he, could God, in fact substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench my lust? That was the gamble of faith. Again, this is Francis Muriak. When we know this is in that fact a gamble, you cannot lose when you turn in repentance and belief to God. The way to fight lust via this passage is to feed faith with the knowledge of God. The way to fight lust is to feed faith with the pursuit of the knowledge of God. If you pursue God, He will not turn you away. He will, in fact, embrace you as He did with the children. And that is precisely why when the disciples meant to keep the children from coming to Jesus, He told them, let the little children come to Me. The little children had a blind pursuit of Jesus. They knew they were sinners. They knew they needed Jesus. It was that simple. That's something that happens to us as Jesus makes us a Christian and then continues to keep us Christians. When I was in college, this truth to me was just dumbstruck. It just hit me over the head like a brick. And I continued to struggle with lust, as most of us do. But in college, I had this epiphany that if Jesus saved me, he could keep me. If Jesus saves you, it is not your effort that keeps you. It is your earning that contradicts Jesus keeping you. If we try to earn the gospel after we've been saved, if we try to earn our goodness, become better people on our own, it is contradictory to the gospel. Effort is not contradictory to the gospel, but earning is contradictory to the gospel. When we rely on Jesus, we can feed faith and not feed lust. How do we do that? In community. Confessing our sins to one another. Having the truth of the gospel preached to us like a siege in a castle. Week after week on Sunday. Week after week in what we call fight clubs. Which are where men and women gather to talk about Jesus, to confess their sin to one another, to saturate themselves in the Word, and to pray for more people to know Jesus. The question, if you're struggling with lust today, is do you know God? Do you know Him enough? The answer between the two is important. Do you know God? Yes. Do you know Him enough? Never. Never. Do you know God? No. You can. Please, I plead with you to know God. Through His Son, Jesus, on the cross, you may know God. Verse 7. 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. As we pursue God, we recognize the call that He has placed on our life. We cannot pursue God without Him calling us first. In verse 7 it says, For God has not called us. If you have an inkling for a pursuit of God, He has called you. For God has not called us for impurity, which would be a whimsical lust after whatever I fancy. But He has called us for holiness. He has not called us to achieve that list which Jesus already achieved, but He has called us to remake us into new beings. He has called us to be new creations. The call of Jesus from the cross is an effectual call. That that means it works. That means if you are a Christian, you will always be a Christian, and you have safety and freedom in that. It is an effective call to repentance and belief in the gospel. God does not call people, and it does not work. If God is tugging on you, if God is asking you to repent of your sin, submit, quit, give up. Receive that call. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is a remaking, a completely better restoring to the glory that God intended. A glory bent to worshiping Jesus and loving Him more and more and more and more and more times infinity plus a thousand. Until we get to heaven. Until we see the face of God face to face and are done working. And begin a joyful work. And are done fighting sin and enjoying Him. We like to say that the battle has been won, but the fight is not yet over. Paul reminds us then that regardless of their belief in what Jesus is saying, and what Paul is saying in here, whether you believe it or not, whether you heed this call to sexual purity, whether you heed this call to sanctification and becoming more like Jesus, Whether you believe it or not, as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You could think I am wrong. Paul says you could think that I am wrong. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not me, Paul, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is completely fine with speaking the truth to his brothers and sisters because he knows deep down inside of us, the Holy Spirit is working. If you are a believer, you have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had. And that same Holy Spirit is working in you. He is speaking truth to us that we might have freedom. He knows our sin. He convicts us of that sin for our good and for our hope. It's not a bad thing to be convicted of sin, friends. It's a great thing. My daughter is learning that. She's two and a half. Oh, gosh. She's almost three. She's learning that repentance is a wonderful thing. The command for children to obey your parents in the Lord is the only command that comes with a promise. It's a blessing. Obey your parents in the Lord, for for it will go well for you. When we discipline our daughter, we tell her that she has a choice to be a blessing or a curse. Do you want to be a blessing or a curse? Do you want to be blessed or be cursed? River, after two and a half years, has learned that she really wants to be a blessing. It's less painful. It's more joyful. That simple idea is translated to us. That simple idea is translated in the instruction of the Lord. 
Do not look at the Lord's commands as burdensome. They are joyful. My yoke is easy and my burden is super heavy. No. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Repentance is a joyful thing. There is freedom. The weight of our guilt is taken off of us. He knows us. He convicts us. And then He sets us free. So, looking back at the bird, he thought what he was doing was a pleasing life to God. We would disagree. But how do we back that up? Not with my own words. Not with my own opinion. Not by my government, the American government, putting him in jail. And certainly not by the democracy that we have, where we get to all decide together what is right and wrong. We know through God's law, through God's word, through God's words, through the word, Jesus. Jesus is the author, the definer. There's a saying that says, he who defines wins. If culture is redefining words, be encouraged. God already defined them. Culture does not get to change them. God defines. God says that what the bird did was wrong because it was an egregious, egregious breaking of His law, not the Geneva Convention. It was a breaking of His law and His love, His grace, not the law of America or not the popular opinion. We can have freedom and live a pleasing life to the Lord because of the author. Because we define, we redefine what we think it means to follow Jesus with what God thinks it means. Thank you for being here today. I plead with you to believe truth, to repent, to follow Jesus, to confess your sin to the Lord and to one another. For in that is healing. I would also invite you to take communion. This communion is a celebration of what Jesus did on the cross. I would invite you, if you are a Christian, to enjoy the bread, which was his body broken for us, to enjoy the blood of the wine, which was his blood, oh, sorry, the juice of the wine, which was his blood spilt for us. There is hope and joy and freedom and repentance. I will pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for hope. There's so much hope in repentance. There's so much hope in living lives that are pleasing to you. Father, our culture tells us that being a goody two-shoes, obeying the rules is shameful. And you contradict that with your act on the cross and your perfection in life. And you give us grace to be free as we pursue you. Please speak to us. May we know you more, and may we know you more and more and more in a pleasing life. Amen.